Well, it is great to see you this morning. If we don't know each other, my name is Brian, and I am uh, the teaching pastor here in Belmont. And uh, Andrew and I get to work together. It's pretty great. And uh, I have a whiteboard this week, and you're wondering what in the world that's all about. And I'll tell you in a moment. But we're starting a new sermon series this week. Starting a new sermon series. We've been in uh, talking about the story of Jacob, one of the, the older stories in the Bible. And now we're going we're gonna to pivot a little bit and talk about something different. And actually, we're going to do something that we don't, uh, we don't normally do. We're going to start off with a little pop quiz here, all right, for this, for this uh, sermon series. And this is how it's going to work. Everyone gets to participate, and you can participate very anonymously, okay? This is anonymous. So we're not going to know exactly who says what on this. But I'd like everybody to go ahead and take out their phone if you have one, right? All right, stop hiding it under your seat like you're not looking at it right now, and just go ahead and freely take it out. Be free, all right? And if you don't have a phone, you can, you can observe. So, Rebecca, why don't you go to the next slide here? Here's how this is going to work. If you scan that QR code, if you scan that QR code, you're going to see on your phone that you can answer this question that's up on the screen right now. So scan the QR code, let it open. If you don't know how to scan a QR code, you haven't eaten at a restaurant since COVID. All right, go ahead and scan that QR code, zoom in, get it, and then you should see the question. You can go ahead and answer that question. All right, so I can see right up in the corner, seven of you have answered. Let's keep going here. Twelve. All right, this is like election night here. If you need to come up here, we have 8% of returns in. I need a map of the congregation. I could, see, I could scan into the congregation and be like, you can see this side over here is heavy over is it not working for some? The QR code's too small? Can you zoom in with your camera? No? Go, so if you go to slido.com and you type in this number, you can also participate. So we're at 32. All right. Some of, you, some of you feel like if you take your phone out in church, there's going to get lightning. It's going to strike it out of your hand. So you're not going to do this no matter what. That's all right. That's all right. We're at 40. Did that work with the code? We're still working on it. 2466 243. All right, that's good. We're at like 43. All right, there's going to be a couple more questions. 45. So let's go ahead and do this one. Go ahead and click, uh, Rebecca. The question was how many books are in the Bible? Let's see what we've got here. We're up at 50 people. All right. All right, so we have, we have 6% at 55 through 60, 55 through 60, uh, or 50 through 55, 55 through 60, uh, 65 through 70 is going to keep going up now because now it's totally skewed, all right? <laughs> Who knows? How many books? 66. All right. Some smart people in this congregation. I just saw 70 through 75 go up. Someone's like, dang it. I shouldn't have hit it. All right. All right, so go to the next one here. Go to the next one. We got how many years are between the Old Testament and the New Testament? This one's wide open. You just type any, how many years? Type that in. How many years between the Old Testament? If you're not that familiar with the Bible, the Bible is broken up into two big divisions. You have the Old Testament, the New Testament. There's a gap in between them. How many years? So we're up to 21. No Googling. All right. Your integrity is on the line here. Yeah, then, then lightning will strike you if you Google the answer. All right. 
All right, we're about at the same number, so let's go. Four participants are still typing. Hurry, three participants are typing. We're almost to 50, which is where we were on the first one. Let's go ahead, Rebecca. Let's take a look here. What do we got here for answers on this? All right, we have 500, 1,000, 6,000. That is, that's a, that's 400-ish. I like that. That's actually probably the most accurate answer on the screen It's 400-ish. All right. But 400, all right, we have some people that are, that are fairly familiar. 400 is, is, is the most popular answer uh, and is the answer that, that we're, 100,000 is aggressive uh, between the two testaments. That is, uh, that's an aggressive answer. But uh, we'll talk about that more. All right, so 400. Last one, we got one last one, all right? This is the last one. The Bible has 1,189 chapters. How many stories does the Bible tell? The Bible has 1,189 chapters. How many stories does the Bible tell? No chit-chatting. No chit-chatting. I hear everyone chit-chatting out there. All right. We're up to 39 here. 44. All right. Let's go ahead, Rebecca. Let's see what we got here. Oh, yeah. A lot of you see where I'm going with this, right? Yeah, you're, you're feeling me out. All right, so th- this is a little bit, uh, this a little bit more uh, diverse answers here on the, on the screen. I want to suggest to you, or we want to suggest to you through this series, that the Bible that you have in front of you, whether you're going to grab one that's in the seats in front of you, or you brought one with you, or you will read it on your phone or whatever. The Bible has 66 books. It's written over hundreds and hundreds of years. You have that, even there's that 400-year gap between the Old Testament, the New Testament, or 400-ish is the, probably the best answer I saw up there. Uh, 400 years between those two testaments. I'm, we're going to suggest to you through this series that the Bible that you have tells one story. And it's one important story. I think there's something that happens to us uh, when, we, when we often read Scripture and, and study Scripture. A couple of years ago, I think it was before the COVID time, my kids were, were a few years younger, uh, we decided to meet up with some friends and we met up at Davis Farmland, uh, which is about an, uh, 45 minutes or an hour away. And one of the things that Davis Farmland has in the fall, every year, if you want to go out there this fall, is they have one of the largest corn mazes uh, in the United States, right? And so you can go back to that overview shot of that corn maze. So that's the corn maze at, David, at Davis Farmland. And every year, it's something different. I think the, the, the one year that I was there, it said they had spelled out Go Pats in the middle of the corn maze, right? And those were the years that we would say something like that. Now we don't say those things anymore. Uh, but last year, it just had, if you looked at it from above, it said one way uh, with a big arrow. And, and so every year, they do it differently. And... I, we had our kids, you know, I can't remember their exact ages, but Nora, our four-year-old, was in a stroller, and then our other two kids were, were there and younger with a family. They have three kids about the same ages as our kids. And so we decided to go into the corn maze. And what happens is once you get into the corn maze is the corn maze looks a whole lot different, doesn't it? than when you're up top in that drone view. I mean, when you're in the drone view, it makes sense. You can see the way through. You can see how it all connects. But when you're in the maze and those stalks are six, seven, eight feet tall, 
and you're walking through the paths, it's a very different view. And I'll tell you what, what happened to us is we started walking and it was a nice evening and we had, we had eaten some food and we were all having a good time and we're walking through the corn maze. And then I start to notice that it's getting a little bit darker outside. We had gone, it was a Friday evening, we had gone after school, we we're having a good time. And then it got a little bit darker and before we knew it, we were in this corn maze and it was pitch black. I mean, it, 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 it gets dark outside when you're in an area with no lights. Uh, you just have the moon and the stars out there. And uh, I can tell you something about my, uh, myself, uh, myself and my wife and our friends. We didn't love walking through the corn maze uh, while it was pitch black outside. Our little children hated it. All right, we didn't love it. They hated it. They were scared. They were no longer having fun. We couldn't figure this thing out. It had been a couple of hours that we had been wandering around this corn maze. And uh, they had, and they even, throughout the corn maze, they build these platforms. I don't know if you've seen this, but they build these platforms. This is the, that Davis Farmland maze. So that you can get up on top of the maze and kind of see the lay of the land a little bit and try to connect where things, where things go. Uh, even when it was light out and we got up on those platforms, we still couldn't figure it out. Now, you, you may just be sitting there, you know, judging our intelligence, which is fine. <laughs> but I want to tell you that this was, this was a very difficult uh, ordeal. And so finally what we did is we said, uh, there were these signs that said, do not move, because I think they switched the, the, the different ways of the, of the maze sometimes. So they put these block, like they're like those road block things, and they say, you have signs, they say, don't move them. And we got to the point that we could see the exit past one of those signs. And so finally, you know, we just picked it up, set it to the side, walked through, put it back, and walked out of the maze because there was no other way we were getting out of that thing. And to this day, uh, my, you know, my son and my daughter will say, do you remember when you guys broke the rules of that maze? And we're like, we had to get out, all right? <laughs> you know, I think a lot of times our, our experience with Scripture is similar is that so often we'll, we'll go to our devotion and it, for the morning and it's a couple of verses, maybe with a thought that someone's written, or we listen to a sermon and we get a chapter or a part of a chapter of, of the Bible, and it's so hard to figure out sometimes how it all pieces together, isn't it? I was really reminded of this last summer. There's a place up in upstate New York that our family has really enjoyed going to, over the last uh, few years, and it's called Camp of the Woods, although it's really, it's much more glamping than camping, uh, and it's not, it's, it's a, a beautiful place on this two-mile lake up in the Adirondacks, and they have wonderful teachers come, and you go there for a week. They got programs for the kids and, and the fam whole family, and last summer, our speaker for the week was, is a gentleman by the name of uh, Mark Yarborough, Dr. Mark Yarborough, and he's the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he spoke for, throughout the week on the story of Scripture. And he said that week, he said, I want you to take this home to your churches and use it. So I have permission, all right? But he said, he said uh, as we were going through, and he was reminding us of the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the one giant story that the Bible tells, 
just in our little row, just in our little row, we had varying experiences with the Bible as we sat there each day in chapel. And yet the thing that struck me is that it was so helpful for all of us. Lori and I had our, uh, some of our best friends with us. And I didn't plan it this way, but now that I'm telling the story out loud, it's the same people that were in the corn maze. <laughs> so they were sitting next to us at the camp all week. And they're friends, great friends of ours, but they don't spend much time in church. And going through the story of Scripture was hugely helpful to them. My wife, Lori, was, was sitting next to me, and she spent her entire life going to church on Sunday mornings. But I don't know that anyone had ever given the drone view of Scripture, flown up to where you could see it all, and it was so helpful for her that somebody did that. I've spent a lot of time in seminary classrooms and studying the Bible, and I thought that week, oh, it's so helpful. Like, you get so into the weeds. It's so helpful to pull back and just see it all. So no matter where you are with Scripture, because a lot of you smart people knew there were 66 books, or at least you got lucky and got in that, you know, 65 to 70 range. But some of you, um, you know, if we added up the other percentages, you weren't quite sure. Some of, us knew, some of you knew that there was about 400 years between the Testaments, but many of us weren't sure. Um, and and there, my guess is that for many of us, no matter how well you feel like you know your Bible, it will be really helpful over the next couple of weeks to zoom out and see how the narrative works from beginning to end. I've been going back and forth for a while on whether or not to jump into this sermon series and, and do this. Parts of it are going to be very different. Uh, it's going to feel maybe more like teaching than preaching sometimes over these weeks. But I'll tell you what cemented it for me, that I felt like God wanted us to do this, is a couple of weeks ago, we were in the middle of our Jacob series. And I was in the fellowship hall after church, and, and a gentleman said to me, he said, I really appreciate how in this series, uh, whether it's Andrew or you or Justin who's preaching, you're, you're connecting the, the individual stories of Jacob with some of the stories that surround Jacob. He said, I've been sitting in church for 40 years, and I have such a hard time remembering how all these stories go together. And I thought, all right, I think God's saying, let's go ahead and, and do this. Let's talk through it a little bit. How is it all pieced together? What is the story that the Bible tells? And to really understand the story, we're going we're gonna to talk through two things. Two things that I think to even get into the story of Scripture, you and I really need to understand. And for some of you, this is going to be review. For some of you, this is going to be brand new. Either way, I would suggest to you it's going to be helpful. I'm always nervous because there's seminary professors in the room. And so if I get something wrong, you know, feel free to just call me out. All right. I went to seminary. I didn't say I was the star student, all right? The Bible, the Bible is 66 books. This is what we're saying. 66 books, 1,189 chapters, and one story. Now, I think for many of us, 
and even I sometimes forget. Because the Bible starts with the book of Genesis, and it starts with words like, in the beginning, and because it ends with Revelation, which are things that have yet to happen, it's easy to assume that the Bible, as it sits in front of you, is organized chronologically. That everything happens one right after another. But that's not entirely true. So to really understand the story of Scripture, you, we need to understand how our Bibles are organized. And to understand that, I have a couple of numbers that I'd like for you to remember. And if you're writing down notes, these are good numbers. You might just want to put these in notes in your phone because we're going to come back to them every single week. So 5, 12, 5, 5, Boy, I spaced that out terrible. 12, all right? This is one group. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. 4, 1, 21, 1. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, 4, 1, 21, 1. Now you're saying to me, I'm telling you that these are important numbers to remember. And you're saying to me, Pastor Brian, I can't even remember people's phone numbers when they tell me. How am I going to remember these numbers? 512-5512-411-211. I'm going to give you a way to remember them. Are you ready? That's what I need you to do. Get ready. Everybody, I'm going to have you start clapping in just a moment. And then I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. And we're going to do this until you're walking through work this week and you're going to be walking down the hallway and you're going to be saying 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, 4, 1, 21, 1. All right, you are taking this with you. So here we go. Everybody get ready. Clap with me. You ready? No, just clap. What? Steady beat. All right, now here we go. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. 512, 5512. 41211. 512, 5512. 41211. All right. Give yourselves a hand. It was pretty good. Good. All right. Now here we go. Five, right? The first five books of the Bible, somebody, all you smart people out there, what do we call these? We call them the Torah, sure, the Torah, that means law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah. These could also be called the the books of Moses, because we, we believe, many people believe that Moses wrote those books. They can also be called the Pentateuch, right? Penta meaning... Five, and tuk meaning book, right? Someone really thought that one through, right? Five books. They went all out on that name. So <laughs> Pentateuch sounds uh, super scholarly. It means five books. So these are the first five books of the Bible. What I want to suggest to you today is if you don't understand these five books of the Bible, you're not going to understand the rest of it. So often we jump to other parts and we got to understand what's happening here to really understand what's happening throughout the rest. 
12, so we have five books that begin, five books of Moses. 12, these are, these are history books. And really, for the most part, the history of one particular group of people, the history of the, does anyone know? <laughs> the history of the... <laughs> the history of the Israelites, Hebrews, God's people. And so, and so the, the history is there. Five, the next five, right? So in these books, when you look at your Bible, if you, if you have through Deuteronomy here, you got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Those are your 12 books. Esther. There's 12, all the way to Esther. The next five books are poetry, sometimes called wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then you have five more books, and these five books are the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Your five major prophets. So if you have five major prophets, what do you got here? You got 12 minor prophets, right? 12 minor prophets. What makes a prophet minor? Shorter book. Thank you, Aaron. That's right. I just want to make that clear. I don't think major and minor necessarily uh, gives what we're trying to say. Because what this says is these are important and these are not. But that's not true. These messages are every bit as important as these messages. It just happens that these people, uh, you know, were just lengthy writers. And these people have shorter books, usually given for a more specific reason to a specific group of people at a specific time, right? But there's, it's not like these matter less, okay? Now, here's the real fun part about this whole chronology thing. If you want to place poetry, major prophets, and minor prophets, where they go chronologically, what you have to do is you have to put your arms around all of those books, those 22 books, right? And you have to pick them up and you have to drop them into the history books. Because if you say to yourself, all right, I read about the, the, the law and, and the Torah, I read about history, and then after history comes poetry, now you're, you're off track. Because in poetry here, you have something like the book of Psalms. Does anyone, who wrote most of the Psalms? David. If you want to read about David's life, where do you go? You go history, right? You go to uh, first and second Samuel. You could be like first, a little bit of first Kings and the Chronicles. So you have to read these books tell you about David's life. So what he's writing over here is actually taking place back here. Same thing with your major prophets. Same thing with your minor prophets. They all have to be into there. When you walked in, hopefully your family got one of these. This is a really helpful timeline that's produced uh, by a professor up at Gordon-Conwell, uh, which is the seminary closest to us. And if you look at this, you have the timeline of things that are happening. And if you come over here, underneath in the very bottom, you see in tiny writing, it says biblical books for this period. You can see when you're in the king's period, about 1050 
to, eight, to 586 B.C., you can see these books that fit in there, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, some poetry books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon, some major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, some minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. And you can keep, keep going on. It's really important that we understand some of this if we're, re- if we're going to understand the story of Scripture. Now, after the minor prophets are done, after history is done, and before we get to this group of books, which make up the New Testament, does anyone know how many years are from here to here? 400-ish. Excellent. Well, I'm going to stick with that. I was going to say 400, right? But I like that answer. So 400-ish years from the end of these history books down down to these books. And for what we have here in the New Testament, four Gospels, right? Telling about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. One book of history. And there's, there's theology. It's all theology. So there's theology in this too. But church history, the book of Acts, the early church. What happened after Jesus left this earth? 21 letters. Some of you people that, that got all the questions right on the trivia, you real holy church people, you might say epistles, right? But nobody says epistles anywhere else, so I'm going to say letters, okay? I remember when I was in seminary, I had this giant book. It was like 1,200 pages long, and my wife was attending Bentley right here in Waltham, and she lived in an apartment with a friend, and her boyfriend was there, and I had this giant book I was using for class, and it said the epistle to the, first, to the Corinthians, and he looked at it, and he's like, what is an epistle, right? So we don't, no one knows what that means. So I'm going to use letters, all right? Letters. In the letters, stick with me, we're almost there. In the letters, they're written to early Christian churches, early Christians, but every letter includes two big things. It includes orthodoxy, meaning what we believe as Christians, And it includes orthopraxy, which is how we're to live. You want to know exactly what we're to believe as followers of Jesus Christ and how to live it out? The letters to early Christians are a great place to go. And then you have this final book of prophecy, apocryphal literature, things that have yet to happen, which is the book of Revelation. This is how the Bible is organized. Not chronologically necessarily, although you have an Old Testament and a New Testament, but by genre. You know, some of these letters you can pick up and put into the history book of the New Testament, similarly to you can, how you can pick up the prophets and put them into the history in the Old Testament. It's not quite as straightforward. So the Bible is organized in this way, and for some of us, you may not have not known this before, For others of us, it's just good to be reminded of all of this, I think. You're not going to understand the story unless you understand how it's organized. But there's another thing that we have to just touch base on this week as we get started. That this story begins in the beginning, right? The whole story begins with God and answers or begins to answer, I might say, 
some of life's most important questions. The story of Scripture begins with God. And in the first couple of chapters, it begins to answer some of life's most important questions. What questions get answered right at the beginning? One of the things that gets answered right at the beginning is the question of origin. Is there another I in there? Yes. There? All right, thank you. Just making sure you're paying attention. I know how to spell. Yeah. Question of origin. And the, the verse that we would go to to start answering that question is right at the beginning. In fact, if you were to pull out your pew Bible, this verse is literally on page one of the Bible that is in the chairs here. And it's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want to suggest to you that in all the conversations around Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, that that verse becomes a verse that reigns supreme for you as you try to figure out the rest of what's happening in those chapters. The balance between science and faith is an interesting one. And, you know, it's, it's, it's weird because in our current culture, it's, it seems to have become something that you can only have one or the other. At least that's how some people view it. But historically and, and also currently around the world, it's a very Western problem. Around the world, it's not such a big problem or issue to say, I have faith, and I'm also embracing things of science, or I think that they're interesting. I think we can learn something. So what you may want me to do is you may want me to stand up here and, and um, spend our time debating or coming down on a certain side of origin and time and things like that. But I think that's a really important discussion. I also think that the Bible is written to be a book that teaches us about who God is first. So my fear is that if all we talk about when we come to the beginning of Scripture is timelines, that we are going to miss why the book was written in the first place. You picture Moses writing down these words. Who is he writing to? Well, he's writing to a group of people who have been enslaved in Egypt for generation after generation. They have lost some of the roots of their faith. They have been living in a polytheistic, idol-worshiping culture. And as they come out of it, Moses is saying to them, I want you to know 
that the reason you're here is that there is only one God who put everything into place. And I'm saying it this way because what I don't want to do, because the room is, I'm sure, mixed. I'm sure it's mixed. I'm sure there are some in the room that want, a, that want an argument right now that God created in six literal 24-hour periods. There are some of you in the room that want an argument that it took a lot longer than that. And, we, and all the things that go back and forth. What happens is, is when we get into that, we start to lose why it was written down. It was written down that we might understand that there is a God in heaven, one, who put it all into place. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. That's why it's all here. So the Bible answers a question of origin. It also starts right at the beginning, and it answers a question of value. In Genesis chapter 1, it's uh, verse 26. And I think, I think we might have a slide uh, for this verse up there, Rebecca. In verse 26, this is what God says. He says, let us make man, let us make people, humans, in our image and after our likeness. All of us feel that, that, that life, human life, has significant value, right? Human life has great value. And the question is, where does that value come from? Why is it? If we came from nothing and go to nothing, then there's no real value. And yet we know humans have value. The Bible says it's because God made you in his likeness. So there's value there. Another thing that we start to see in early scripture is purpose. God, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and he tells them to do two things. He tells them early on in the story to be fruitful and multiply. And he tells them that they are to have dominion over the earth around them. To be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over the world around them. I want to suggest to you that one of the things that almost everyone I know agrees about is that some of the biggest injustices and sins in the world around us is when people devalue human life and when people devalue the world that is around us. When there is injustice in those two places, we feel it. That is wrong. And where does that come from? Where does that come from? Most people don't really have an answer to that. They just feel it. Scripture tells us that the reason we feel that is because God has infused people with value by creating them differently than the animals around us in his image and in his likeness. And he has given us a purpose to create and to rule over the world around us. So there's origin, there is value, there is purpose, there is also pain. When God creates, it's all good except for one thing that's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone, right? So God creates Eve, and then it's very good. And after God creates, it's very good. It's just the way it's supposed to be. The term you might hear for that is shalom. Everything's working the way it's supposed to work. 
But then something happens that breaks it all apart. And it happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent comes and says this line that the enemy has said to me and has said to you. God put everything the way it was supposed to be. And he said to Adam and Eve, you're in charge. You can do whatever you want. There's just one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch that one. And the enemy slithered up to Eve. And I've heard these words before. Come on. Did God really say? I mean, God that loves you and wants you to have to do it. Like, God that wants you to be happy, did he, is he really trying to take this away from you? Wouldn't he want you to be happy? Wouldn't he want you to take part in this? And it's enough that both Adam and Eve do what God said not to do. And when they do that, pain and brokenness enter the world. Every single time we recognize the world's not the way it's supposed to be, it's here. When tomorrow we hear over and over again that it's been 10 years since the bombing at the Boston Marathon, how does stuff like that happen? Why do innocent people get hurt? Genesis 3.1. And so in the early chapters of Scripture, we learn about these three things, or these four things. when you look at pain, I don't know if you flip through the first few chapters of your Bible, but once Adam and Eve make this decision, it goes from bad to worse. In fact, if you look at Genesis 1 through, Genesis 3 through 11, you start to see just how bad it gets. Because there is sin and there is brokenness that enters the world. And then in Genesis chapter 4, you have Cain who kills his brother Abel. And then in Genesis chapter 5, you have a genealogy. And when you start your Bible reading plan in, in January, every single year you get to Genesis chapter 5 and you say to yourself, I'm not going to make it, right? I got four chapters done and now I'm here in Genesis 5. It's a genealogy. This is, uh, I don't know how I'm supposed to read all these names. But here's the thing as you read those names. It's hard to get through. I, I get it. But you read those names, and do you know what happens in a genealogy that never happened before when Adam and Eve were created? Death after death after death after death after death. Death didn't exist in Shalom. Death is unfair. It doesn't feel right. Genesis chapter 6 through 10, you have Noah... Noah, who, who is saved by God, but God, the depravity is so bad that God says he has to destroy the whole earth, and he saves Noah and Noah's family. But let's be honest, we don't talk about this in Sunday school. Noah had his own problems. Like, Noah's broken too. We all sang, the Lord told Noah to build him an arky arky. Anyone sing that? And we have all our kids sing it, Right? But Noah, like none of ever says, like when Noah got off the boat, he really got drunky, drunky. Like no one says any of that. <laughs> no one talks about that. And the brokenness, the brokenness and the, and the sin that's in Noah's life too. 
And then you go back down to, there's more genealogies in there. You get to 11, it's the Tower of Babel. And uh, in the Tower of Babel, humans say, we're going to make our name great and build a tower to the sky, and God destroys those plans. I'm going to invite our worship team forward to get ready to close this out this morning. You know, even as you have origin, value, purpose in the first few chapters of Scripture, you have this too. And we know how this feels. But there's something else in the first few chapters of Scripture that we can't miss. In the first few chapters of Scripture, there's origin, value, purpose, and pain. There's also this word in, in the first few chapters of Scripture. There's hope. It happens is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God's talking to the serpent. And he says, I'm going to put an oppressor, enmity. I'm going to put someone between you, serpent, you, enemy and the people I've created. Between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head, or some translations, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Meaning, you'll get a strike in, but he's gonna win. And even back there in Genesis three, thousands of years before it happens, God is saying, I'm sending a savior. I'm sending my son who's going to make this all right. And then in Genesis 5, in the middle of that genealogy where it's death, 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 there's this one comment about this guy, Enoch. And it's, it's such, a, it's such a, a significant comment that is brought in again in books like, like Hebrews in the, in the New Testament. And where it says so-and-so lived so many years and then died and so-and-so lived so many years, it just says about Enoch, he walked with God and was not. Or some translations said he walked with God and was no more. For God took him. And there's this idea that because Enoch walked with God, at the end of his life, he was with God. And there is the hope for each and every one of us that we have that too. What we want is to be with God. We want to be with Him. And the whole of Scripture is this idea that we have a need for a Savior and God has provided one. Or another way to say it, and the way that we're going to say it throughout this series over the coming weeks, is that the story of Scripture is God with us so that we can be with Him. God with us so that we can be with Him. And the story starts with God. God is in the garden. And then we mess it up. And we're without God. And there's this desire inside of all of us, especially when we sense the pain in the world, to be with God and in his presence. There's something about being with people. And didn't we learn that during COVID? 
when we couldn't be with people. Joy Franny walked in this morning and I was thinking of this story about Joy's brother and I asked her if I could share it. It's almost three years since Joy's brother Paul passed away. Paul used to come and sit right over there. Paul was in his 50s, had Down syndrome, and I loved having Paul in the building. It was a really painful moment when Paul was in the ICU after he contracted COVID early on in the pandemic. And the only way we could pray for Paul was through an iPad. And I remember being on that call with Joy and her brother David, the nurse holding the iPad so that we could pray for Paul. And Paul didn't really know exactly what was happening as he was there. And all you want in a moment like that is to be with the person. And the pain that I know that that has caused in in talking to Joy. And for some of you that weren't able to be with the people that passed, how painful that is. And how painful it is to live life not with God. But God has provided a way. And like the Apostle Paul says in Romans, that because of one man's sin, death reigned through that one man, but much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. God wants to be with you. And he has made a way for you to be with him through all the brokenness and sin. That's the story of scripture. That's the story we're going to talk about over the coming weeks. My prayer for you is you'll take his invitation to be with him. Would you stand with me as we prepare to close this morning? As we close, one of the things Joy said to me when she walked in this morning is she said, Pastor, I'm struggling so much that if there's a time in the service for someone to pray with me, I would love for someone to pray over me. Joy's sitting right here. This is what I'm going to ask. Some of you that are near Joy, the Rita Detweilers and Gregs of the world, and, and I don't know, Rosemary, if you want to join in, would you pray for Joy while we're singing this final song? And let me ask you this. Is there anyone else in the house? I'm going to say this quickly because uh, I've I've talked for too long. Is there anyone else in the house who you were saying as we sing this last song, if someone could put their hand on my shoulder and pray for me, I feel like I've been living without God or I feel like God has not been close and I need God to feel close. Is there anyone else who is feeling that way with the courage, the desire to be prayed for? One up in the balcony. A couple of you, Brian, if you'd be willing to pray. Let's worship our God together. God, we love you and we thank you that you have saved us. God, thank you that you've provided a way for us to be with you. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship our God together.